Thank you, Ken. <coughs> Yesterday I was at the uh, Society of Biblical Literature Regional Convention out near the airport, and uh, I attended several papers. Some of them were extraordinary papers. Uh, one of them dealt with the dove that descended on Jesus at his baptism, and uh, it was just amazing saying how this dove represented an alternative to the way kings of Rome or Caesars were anointed or inaugurated uh, to be kings. Uh, they were inaugurated by the pouring out of oil from a vessel that was shaped like an eagle, which represented power and strength. But Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit by a dove descending upon him. And they showed how, this one guy showed how uh, the original Caesars were all proclaimed to be God, proclaimed to be the kings of the nation based on augury. Now, augury is divination <coughs> through the use of the flight of birds. The flight of birds. And they would determine by the flight of birds who the Caesar was to be through divination, augury. And then that king was inaugurated. If you look at the word inauguration, augur is right in the middle of it. So this was showing the difference between Jesus' inauguration as king, uh, which whose kingdom would be a humble kingdom and a kingdom of peace versus uh, the Caesars who were going to rule by force and uh, several papers like that were just excellent papers so I got home very late last night I've been suffering through uh, a sinus infection this week I hope I can uh, teach well let's take our Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 5 <coughs> Luke 5 and while you're finding that I'll remind you that the lunch bunch is going to McCormick and Schmick uh, if you've never been there it's a great place seafood restaurant in North Park Mall and so that's going to be about 11 o'clock. Okay, Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. Luke 5, 27. Now I want you to notice how this section opens. After these things. After what thing? After the healing of the leper and the healing of the paralytic. After these kinds of events. He... That's Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office or the toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now this is the only time that Levi is mentioned in Luke's gospel. And he is mentioned in relationship to Jesus calling him into the ministry. This is the fifth person that Jesus is called into full-time ministry. Those who are asked to leave their profession and follow him. Tells us a lot about the call here. This is a man who's already in a profession. He's not a teenager. We're going to learn a little bit about how taxes were collected. He's a man of means, probably a man of middle age. Some uh, would say he's, he's wealthy, but he's a man of means, as we will see. And he leaves a profession in midlife to follow Jesus. So the call into the ministry is not only for those who are 15, 16, 21, 22 years of age. It's for people who are much older as well. 
So just as James and uh, John and Peter and Andrew heard the call of Jesus, so this man responds. And the call, again, you'll notice at the end of verse 27, is follow me. Now, we know a lot about this man because of his profession. Here he's called a tax collector, and he's sitting in the tax office. The Jews had two kinds of taxes. They had a direct tax, which was a tax similar to a land tax, only it wasn't that you were paying on taxes on your property. It was paying, you were paying taxes on the produce that came off the property. It was a very agricultural society. So it would be like an income tax. And you were assessed how much taxes you had to pay based on your income, based on what you did in, in society. And then there was an indirect tax. The direct tax, by the way, was, was collected. The direct tax, that would be the land tax, was collected by the Jerusalem Council. The monies were brought into the Jewish temple. And the Jews had to collect taxes that, was going to, that were going to be sent to Rome from their own people. And that was not a good situation. Jews and the Romans didn't get along real well. And here the leaders of the temple had to go out and make sure that the taxes were collected. And they collected, bring them to the temple, and then they would send them on to Rome. That was a sore spot. Then you had indirect taxes. And these were coal taxes. These were taxes that were levied on vehicles going through certain points along the highway and uh, taxes that were customs taxes and duties, duty taxes. And that's what this man is. And the way they would collect that is they would have toll booths. And if you brought your vehicle there, you had to pay a toll. Now this process of collecting taxes was a very interesting one. A businessman would bid on the contract to collect taxes. So the Roman government, the Senate, would accept the bids, and the, the, uh, the contract went to the highest bidder. And the man who won the contract would then have to send in advance the money to the treasury of Rome. So he had to be a very wealthy man. And he would do that determined on last year's receipts. He'd find out how many... Cars, in those days it would have been carts, <laughs> came through a certain road or the roads, and uh, he would send it in advance, and then it was his responsibility then to recruit, recoup the money that he sent in advance and uh, by charging tolls. And he, it was, they were, these guys would uh, you know, extort money. You'd stop at the toll booth, and they would charge you more than you had, and that's how they made money. They were very despised people. And these were Jewish people collecting taxes from Jewish people. But the money was going to be sent on to Rome. And so the tax collector was seen as a collaborator with Rome. And the Jewish people did not like the tax collectors. Well, it would be like our Dallas tollway. We have toll booths. You go through, you put your money in, and guess what? The state determines how much. Now, we're being gouged, right? We all know we're being gouged, but there's nothing we can do about it, because if we want to go on the toll road, guess what we do? You throw the money in or you get your card, and that's just the way it is. And so these people had tremendous power, because if they said you didn't go on the road, you didn't go on the road. And if you had produce or cargo that you had to get to point A to point B, you were in trouble. So they could gouge you, or they could 
take bribes and all kinds of things. Well, this Matthew, he's running one of the toll booths. He is probably a branch manager. He probably doesn't own all the toll booths, but he has several of the franchises, and he's, he's making a lot of money. Now, this tells you the kind of people that Jesus calls. He doesn't call people that are necessarily respected, because this man was despised, although he had some money. He was a social outcast. There are a lot of crooks that have a lot of money. You don't respect them. They make it in unsavory ways. And those aren't the kind of people you expect to go into the ministry, that Jesus calls into the ministry. But I hate to tell you, those are exactly the kind of people that he calls into the ministry. He just changes them. They have tremendous abilities. You know, they are tricksters, and they know how to do all the angles. They have great minds. They just use them in, wrong, in their minds in the wrong way. And that's the kind of people often that Jesus calls into the ministry. It's very strange. Uh, look at verse 8, 28. So it says, so he left all, that means his business and everything, he rose up and he followed him, just as uh, Peter and John and James and Andrew did. They just left, left it all and start following Jesus. He becomes a full-time minister. Now, we know that tax collectors had come to John the Baptist. We know that from back in chapter 3. They came to John the Baptist to be baptized, and some of them were baptized. And they followed John. John goes to prison. They start following Jesus. So it's assumed that Levi had been listening to Jesus. Maybe his life had even changed a little bit by this time. And now Jesus is going to call him into full-time ministry. But for the people around him, the, uh, the respectable people in society, they would have seen that as a shock, him being called into the ministry. Now look at verse 29. Then Levi gave him, that's Jesus, a great feast. Notice the word great. In his own house. That indicates this man has wealth. That indicates man has space. Uh, most Jews lived in very small, cramped court, uh, quarters. This man has a great house that can accommodate many people. There, I have seen pictures of houses in the area of Capernaum and in the Middle East uh, during the first century. Some were as large as 8,000 square feet. Now, that's hard to believe, isn't it? But they were unbelievable structures. So, I don't know how large this man's house was, but he was not living in cramped quarters. Isn't that, what, that much we do know. Now, the implication is that Jesus is going to be the guest. It's verse 29 says he gave Jesus a great feast. And the implication here is that Levi is going to introduce Jesus to his friends and his colleagues. So, in a sense, it's an evangelistic party that he's throwing. He wants his associates to hear from Jesus this teacher, he may not understand Jesus being the Messiah yet, but he does think that Jesus is a great rabbi, uh, possibly even a prophet, and so he throws a feast. Now, at this point, we have to stop just for a second, because feasts in Bible times were different than they are today. They were more than just meals. Uh, in America, American culture, we just run out and we get a bite to eat. And, uh, but that's not what these were. And we might even have parties today, or feasts. But 
And there's celebrations of some kind. Maybe you have a wedding feast. There's a celebration of some kind. But these feasts in Bible times were much more than just eating meals or celebrating. They were patterned after something called the Greco-Roman Symposium. Now this is where scholars have it all over typical Bible teachers. And if you can interact with the scholars, and that's what I was trying to do with this thing yesterday, which is not easy for me because I'm a Bible teacher, uh, you can learn an awful lot. Meals in Bible times were imitations or patterned after the Greek-Roman symposium. Symposiums included three elements. Number one, there was the eating and the drinking. <clears throat> Number two, there was table talk. And it was planned. Planned table talk. I think when I read, the, uh, when I was studying the symposium, I was thinking about uh, many times where um, <clears throat> the uh, Pattersons invited us uh, to a meal with some other friends, and Lynn and I did, were not placed next to each other around the table. We've been invited to the country club, they had six or eight other people, and Lynn and I did not sit next to each other. My name tag was over here, and Lynn's was over there, and somebody else's husband was here, and someone else's wife was here, and guess why they did that? So there would be conversation, lively conversation around the table. That's what they did at the symposium. There was the eating and drinking, number one. Then there was the lively table conversation. And then the third element of the symposium was that there was some form of entertainment, usually a speaker who spoke on a very engaging subject. Now, some of you belong to supper clubs. And the supper club, believe it or not, you may not understand that, but it's based on the symposium method. And supper clubs and the symposiums as well are very class conscious. That's something that you really need to understand in this. The symposiums were very class conscious. Eating in Bible times was much more than a biological experience, a gastronomical experience. <laughs> it was a social statement. And the only thing I can liken it to, to, to give you the analogy, is that eating in Bible times was not only biological, it was sociological, it was more like sex is today. And I said the S word right there. <laughs> sex involves more than biology, it involves sociology. All I have to say is Governor Elliot Spitzer. <laughs> it speaks loudly about, it's not only about what you do, it's who you do it with. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and eating was the same way. It wasn't that you ate, it was who you ate with. You ate with people of certain class. And that's, there were, that eating 
Eating, were, eating was a sign of boundary markers. It told you, told who you ate with and who your class was. And you could divide people into certain sociological stratas based on who they ate with. with and share, shared meals symbolized shared lives and intimacy and things in common. So here Jesus is the head, is the invited guest at a feast with a bunch of tax collectors. See, that's what Luke wants you to know, and to his readers, when they read it, they go, tax collectors. Now look at verse 30. And the scribes and the Pharisees, see, they're there again. They're, they're watching, probably watching who's going into the house. They're sitting out in their cars spying on Jesus. <laughs> they complained against his disciples saying, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, that's, that's the complaint. It's a sociological complaint. Why does uh, your rabbi cross social boundaries? See, the Jews were concerned not only uh, what you ate, they were concerned with whom you ate. And both had to be ritually clean. What you ate had to be ritually clean. Certain foods you could not eat, they were unclean. And the people you ate with had to be ritually clean. They couldn't be lawbreakers, and they couldn't be sinners, especially not a rabbi and his disciples. So they were very social conscious, and this is the issue. What you eat and with whom you eat. And here's a righteous rabbi eating a meal with the absolute dregs of society, the outcasts, the people who are the most despised. I don't know how we can think of anybody more despised than tax collectors were in those days, because they were collaborators for the enemy who had troops in your territory, and you were under occupation from enemy troops. Uh, maybe we can liken it to Iraq, where our army troops are occupying their cities. And you know how they feel about Iraqis who are working with us as collaborators? They don't like that, do they? What do those collaborators end up doing oftentimes? Moving to America. Because if the enemy gets a hold of them, it's curtain. And so they see the tax collectors, the Jews see the tax collectors as collaborators with Rome, who has occupation troops right there in their cities. And so Jesus is breaching social convention, violating respectability. Now, notice who asked the question, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the, the Pharisees were pious ones. The word means pious ones, and they were separatists. They believed that... Uh, Godliness was related to whom you associated with. And you only associated with certain people. That made you godly, and the rest were sinners and lawbreakers. And the scribes were the intelligentsia of Jewish society, and they were the ones who interpreted the law. <clears throat> Not literally, often they gave the traditional, and you know, they were the ones who interpreted the law for the people, and uh, sometimes they interpreted it incorrectly. But they're the ones that are judging Jesus. Okay? So you have to understand that. 
So you have one group here that's exclusive, and Jesus, <laughs> look what he is. Jesus is just the opposite. Jesus is inclusive. The Pharisees, exclusive. These people don't come within our boundaries. They're outcast. We'll cast them outside the boundary. But Jesus is inclusive. He pulls people in, and he goes outside of his own boundaries into other people's boundaries. Now look at the look at Jesus' response. <clears throat> Verse 31. Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now notice how Jesus changes the terminology. The Pharisees use the word sinners. Jesus uses the word sick. See the change of terminology there? And Jesus portrays himself in verse 31 as a physician. So as a physician, he crosses the boundary lines. You see, a physician has one goal in life, and his goal is to heal. And if you're sick, and you're an outcast, but I'm a physician and I have the means to heal you, guess what I have to do? I have to make a house visit. And sometimes that means me, professionally, crossing the social boundaries to bring about that healing. Jesus sees all these people out here who have been invited to the party as people who are sick. They have a need. And he sees himself as a physician who's willing to cross the boundary lines. He's not there to eat with them. That's not his purpose. He's not there to have a drink. He's there to restore them. And he's there to heal them. To forgive their sins and restore them into a right relationship with God. So that's very interesting. It's very important. Jesus is in the restoration business. Uh, as I was thinking through this, I, I thought of the, uh, the poem Humpty Dumpty. You know, he had a great fall and Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. You know, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Well, in this scenario, here you have these sinners, and they're like Humpty Dumpty. They're, they're all broken up, and no one will help them because they're of a different social status. But guess what? Jesus does. And he'll cross that line in order to restore these people back to health. He doesn't leave them in their sin. It's very important that we understand that. Look at verse 32. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Notice that these people who are sick are going to be called. Now he uses the other language, and he calls, mentions that they're sinners. goes back to the original language. But he says, I don't leave them sinners. I call them to repentance. Do you see that? I call them to reorient their lives toward God. So Jesus doesn't leave them in their sin. He calls them to repent. This is one thing that my students probably get tired of me, hearing me say. But one of the things I say over and over again is this. God does not accept you just as you are. That's one of the biggest lies I've ever heard. Oh, God accepts you just as you are. No, God doesn't accept you just as you are. He accepts you right where you are. And there's a difference. But he doesn't leave you where you are. He restores you. He changes you. He calls you to repent, to make an about face. So they ask that question. Now we come to the next question. Look at verse 33. Then they said to him, 
Now, uh, why do the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours, your disciples, eat and drink. <clears throat> now we have a question that deals with fasting. And uh, notice who asked this question. Can't be the Pharisees who asked this question. Because notice the question <coughs> includes the Pharisees. Says, Likewise, those of the Pharisees, they fast. See, so it's not the Pharisees asking the question. Pharisees are part of the subjects here in the question. So maybe it's uh, another group there. Uh, maybe it's the scribes who are asking the question. We're not certain. But the question is, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast? But guess what you guys do? You eat and drink. Now we do know from Luke 18, and when we get there we'll see that, that the Pharisees fasted twice a week. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Every week. And that was a planned fast. There's different kinds of fast in the Bible. One is a planned fast. The Tuesday-Thursday fast was a planned fast. It wasn't a biblical fast. No word does the Bible say you have to do that, but they just did it. Uh, one planned fast was the Day of Atonement. It was a sign of mourning. All fasting is a sign of mourning. And they would fast all day on the Day of Atonement, mourning for their sins, asking God to show them mercy. But another reason that people fasted, and this seems to indicate that they were fasting often, was, and especially John the Baptist, was they were fasting because they were mourning over the condition of the nation. Rome controlled Israel. They were oppressed, they were occupied, and they would fast and say, Oh Lord, oh Lord, deliver us! Just as the Jews heard the pastor today talk about how the Jews cried out to God and he delivered them through the exodus. They were crying for another exodus. Lord, just as you delivered us from Egypt, deliver us from the new Pharaoh, Caesar. Deliver us from the oppression. And they would cry out and they would fast and they would say, Lord, set up your kingdom. Send your Messiah and set up your kingdom. And that's probably what this is talking about right here. Now look at Jesus' response. He said, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? And the answer is no. As long as the bridegroom is present, the party goes on. Let's say you're at a wedding feast. How long do you party at the wedding feast? When you go to a wedding reception today. Now remember, those wedding receptions were seven days long, but ours last two or three hours. How long do we have the parties? How long do we have the reception? Well, we have the reception as long as the bride and bridegroom are there. But when the car pulls up to take them out, guess what? <coughs> then it's over. That's what Jesus is saying. Look at his response. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? And the answer is no. As long as the bridegroom's with them, what are they going to do? Fast? No, they're going to what? Feast. They, you, you don't stop eating. You don't start fasting until they leave, until the bridegroom leaves. You see, and that's what he's saying right here. Now look at verse 35. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. 
then they will fast in those days. Now, a couple of observations here. First of all, Jesus is presenting himself as the bridegroom. You want to know why my disciples don't fast? I'm the bridegroom, and I'm still around. The party's going to go on. He's the bridegroom. The feast, as we'll see in Luke, is a picture of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, as Tony Campalo says, is a party. And throughout the Gospel of Luke, the kingdom of God is pictured as a feast. This is the first of nine meals mentioned in Luke's Gospel. We'll see nine different mentions of meals in Luke's Gospel. This is the first. And in most of them, the meal is related to the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like a king. Uh, the kingdom of God is like a king who threw a great feast. You know, you've heard of that, all those different parables and stories of the meals. And the kingdom of God is likened to a feast. So this feast is a picture of the kingdom of God. Now, when is the fasting appropriate? When is fasting appropriate? Look at verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Now, look at the... It's not when the bridegroom just leaves. This is how we know this means something very special. It's when the bridegroom is taken away. Now, in the Greek, this means, this describes a taking away through an act of violence. Like you would get a crook, and you put his hands behind his back, and you take him away with force. This is a hidden reference, a veiled reference to his coming crucifixion when he's going to be arrested, and when he's going to be taken away. When he's taken away in violence. Now, to the Pharisees hearing this, they don't, certainly don't understand that, do they? They don't understand that he's going to die in three years. They, that's, this is like a riddle to them. When he gets finished saying this, they probably wonder, what in the world is he talking about? But Luke's readers understand it very clearly. Do you know why? Because Luke writes this about 30 years later. 30 years after all this has happened, he writes it. And they remember he was taken away. Jesus was taken away. And they say, oh, he's the bridegroom. And the feast here represents the kingdom of God. And So the fasting can begin when the bridegroom is taken away. And this means in an act of violence. Now look at verse... 36. He gives a second response. Verse 36. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece of new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also, the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. Now, Jesus is giving them a parable. What's a parable? A story with a hidden meaning. A hidden meaning. So he begins to tell them. And what's he talk about? He talks about a piece of cloth. He said, here we have this old garment. Gets a hole in it. We need to patch it up. So what do we do? We put a new patch right on that old material. But guess what happens? As soon as it's washed, the new piece causes the old, which is rotting, to tear. And by the way, even before you wash it, 
when you put that patch on that old piece of material, they don't even match. There's an incompatibility between them. That's what Jesus says. That's his parable right here. That's all he says. And I can imagine this saying, what in the world is he talking about? See? Now look at verse 37. Now he's going to give the next parable. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. Now he's going to give a second parable. And again, it's about old and new. And this time he's talking about a leather wine bottle. And the way they make wine is they put grape juice in, in the a leather bottle and it would ferment and the bottle would get old and, you know, it would, is the wine fermented? It toughened up the leather and the leather, leather would get brittle and hard. And then if you drank all your wine out of that and then you say, oh, let's make a new batch. And you put the new wine in that old stiff wine bottle, guess what would happen? It would crack and break. And all the new wine, the good wine, would just flow out and it would all be ruined and the, the wine skin would be ruined. So you can't do that. See? You don't want to put old in with new. So look at verse 38. But new wine must be put in new wine skins and both are preserved. Both the wine and the wine skin. Now, these are parables, these are hidden sayings, but what's Jesus trying to say? What's the meaning here? It's simply this, that Jesus is doing something new. Something new has come on the scene. Okay? The Pharisees are still under the old system. They're under the law. They're under the old dispensation. They're under the law of Moses. They want Jesus to conform to all this old stuff, and guess what? The kingdom has arrived. The king has arrived. A new thing. God's doing a new thing. And guess what? They're trying to put him into the old package. Get him right down. They want him to be like they want him to be. Which means, follow the boundaries. Don't reach out to sinners. Eat the right things. Notice all those external things. Keep the law. And they're trying to mold him into saying here, but he's doing something entirely new. See? He is establishing a new covenant. So these parables and this message is what we call an eschatological message, which simply means it deals with the end times. That's what eschatology is. It's a study of the end times. This is an eschatological message. It deals with the end times and it deals with the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying the kingdom has arrived. The kingdom has arrived. Never forget that. And I hope you will. We'll never forget that. Remember what he said back in 421? Today, the scripture is what? Fulfilled in your sight. It's arrived. Something new has happened. The old dispensation is going away. And right now. And so guess what? The bridegroom is here. Because the Messiah was going to be a bridegroom who throws feast and eats with his disciples and the bridegroom is right here. If the bridegroom's right here, guess what we should be doing? Fasting? No, we should be feasting. See? And all that the prophets spoke about has come to pass, and so this should be a time of joy, not a time of fasting. When should you fast? 
when the bridegroom is taken with violence. And when does that happen? When he's put on the cross. And you know when they fasted? They fasted, I'll tell you for how long they fasted. They fasted for three days. And three days later, guess what happened? He rose from the dead, and guess what? The next thing we see is they're eating with him. And he is the king. And we are in the kingdom, not the fullness of the kingdom. No, the kingdom hasn't come in its fullness, but we are getting to taste the fruits of the kingdom. The first fruits of the kingdom. And this is a time of feasting, not a time of fasting. See, we should have joy in Jesus Christ. Not be mourning. He's already defeated the powers. Every world government has already been defeated. There will never be a world government that stands up and lasts forever because one day Christ is going to come back and he's going to reign forever. They've already been defeated. They just haven't been replaced, every one of them. But one day they will be. But the victory's already won. It's like watching a Dallas Cowboys game and we're winning 52 to nothing in the fourth quarter. You can turn it off. The game's... Oh, is the contest still wild? Yeah, but guess what? It's over. We know who the winner is. It's a time of rejoice. Might as well go out and eat supper. Go out to you know, go out to the restaurant and eat. <laughs> Celebrate. <laughs> yeah, but it's you know, we haven't seen the last second. Well, guess what? He's already won the victory, and so we should be rejoicing, not fasting. And mourning over things. We are looking at things incorrectly when we do that. Now look at verse 39. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires the new. For he says, the old is better. And that's the Pharisees. They actually think the old is better. That's where they've been all these years. He's coming up with something new. And they... Like the old better, and that's just the way it is. But remember in the parable of changing water into wine, they said, oh, the news better. <laughs> These people don't think the news better. They think that the old is better. And they hesitate to change because they're locked into old theology, and they're resisting the move of God. And it's happened, not only then, it happens, it's happened throughout history. All the way up to the present time. I'm a, a student of revivals. I can tell you every major revival that has taken place, when God has moved in great power, there have been people who have resisted it. And they have been Christians who have resisted it. Back in the first great awakening, there was a group called the Old Lights. The Old Lights. And then there was Finney. And all the Jonathan Edwards and the ones who were preaching and the revival broke out. They were called the new lights. And the old lights said, now we like our way better, so we don't like this new innovation. But guess who was right? Edwards was right. Whitfield was right. The old lights were wrong. So you have to watch out because there's always people who want to stay under the old system. And they like it better. They don't like what a new move of God. They often label it. It's like they labeled Jesus. Ah, he was sinner, does he? Okay. So you have to realize what's happening here. Now let me give you a couple lessons. <clears throat> Number one, we will always clash with self-righteous people who want to 
put sinners outside the boundaries. They want a, they want a church that's safe. They don't want to have people who are a little different in there. They, they always, uh, they want the sinners out there. And guess what? If you start reaching out to sinners, you want to cause a problem? Just start reaching out to sinners and bringing them into your respectable church. <laughs> You'll see what happens. <laughs> There'll be a clash. It's been that way since the time of Jesus. Okay. Lesson number two. There will always be those who are trying to get you to keep the law to gain righteousness. There will always be those who want you to never change, keep the law to gain righteousness. Jesus is not about the law. Jesus is about grace. Jesus is about mercy. Jesus is about love. Okay? And then the third thing that you're going to see here, and I think we see this right in this text, is that Jesus portrays himself as a physician. And Jesus portrays himself as a bridegroom. As a physician, he brings healing. As a bridegroom, he brings happiness. And as a physician, he brings restoration. And as a bridegroom, he brings rejoicing. <clears throat> and don't say, well, yeah, but he's not with us now. Oh, yes, he is. He said, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. The kingdom is a party, and therefore Christianity should be joyous, and it shouldn't be burdensome. So we need to party on. <laughs> we need to get beyond social class and we need to reach out to others and not be exclusive but be inclusive and bring them in Amen. Amen. Father we thank you for your word we thank you for this picture which is uh, so real to us and uh, when we look at our own lives in light of these texts we see how far short we fall Lord we want to be a joyous people we want to be an embracing people help us to to be more like Jesus and less like the Pharisees and the scribes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.